BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello and welcome to the Bill Press Pod Reporters Roundtable. I'm Jason Dick, Editor-in-Chief at CQ Roll Call, sitting in for Bill, who's on vacation with his family. Here in Washington, D.C., it's about 8.15 in the morning on June 23rd. Well, we've got more people running for president. This week, it was Will Hurd, former Republican congressman from Texas. But what about the frontrunners, Joe Biden and Donald Trump? Can they keep their coalitions together? Meanwhile, the president's son, Hunter Biden, will plead guilty to charges related to not paying his taxes and a gun purchase. House Republicans vow to keep investigating. And they had a busy week, censuring Adam Schiff, debating impeachment of Joe Biden. And this was all happening as the policy folks delved into big ticket items like appropriations and defense authorization. The one year anniversary of the Supreme Court's Dobbs decision is tomorrow, and the politics of it continues to reverberate with reports that Biden will make it a key issue in his reelection campaign. Here to discuss these topics and more are Joe Morton, Washington correspondent for the Dallas Morning News. Good morning, Joe. Good morning. How are you guys? Great. Igor Babich, senior politics reporter at HuffPost. Welcome, Igor. Thanks, Jason. And Jessica Taylor, Senate and governor's editor at the Cook Political Report. Good morning, Jessica. Good morning, Jason. Joe, let's start with you as the as the newbie. Welcome. This is your first time on the Bill Press Pod. Uh, Will Hurd, he's a uh, former congressman from the San Antonio area. You're the Washington correspondent for the Dallas Morning News. Was this did this take you by surprise that Will Hurd, uh, you know, a, a nice guy, a good congressman, uh, fairly young, good resume, would jump into the Republican primary? I think what's most surprising about it is how late into the race he, he waited to get in. Uh, you know, he'd been rumored to be interested uh, in a White House bid for a while. Uh, but at this late date, uh, and especially as, you know, a former congressman who just doesn't have nearly the profile as these, you know, more bold-faced names in the race like DeSantis uh, and, and Mike Pence, uh, you know, it, he has a very short runway here to get his polling, national polling numbers up to get his fundraising in a place where he can qualify for the debate stage in Milwaukee on August 23rd. And if he doesn't make that debate stage, I have a little bit of a hard time seeing how he doesn't just become, uh, you know, a footnote to this uh, 2024 race. And Igor, uh, you know, maybe in another time, somebody like Will Hurd, who's a former CIA officer, a congressman, uh, you know, he, he would have been, you know, somebody who had to, and people would say like, wow, that's a pretty impressive resume. This guy should be running for president. But we are not in those times. No, we're not. Uh, you know, once upon a time, a Republican primary electorate would have loved a candidate like Will Hurd. But uh, we are in the days of Donald Trump and uh the changed changed party under under his presidential presidency. So um, you know, Will Hurd. You talked to him. I've, I've spoken to him at campaign events uh, when he was considering a run for president. And it's just the nicest, most normal human being. Um, you know, very standard conventional positions. Uh, you ask him about things that Republican primary voters care about today, like transgender issues. He's got you know, he's very moderate on 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 the 
those kinds of topics. Um, so it's I find it uh, I'm struggling to understand why he's doing this, especially jumping in this late, given that there are now 12 people running and how hard it is to get attention uh, as a presidential candidate who's not named Trump or DeSantis. Um, you really think what what he's doing here and, and is he just is it a, just a plea for relevancy at this point? And Jessica, like, again, in another time, perhaps somebody like Heard would have run for the Senate. Uh, I mean, Ted Cruz is up for re-election this year. He's not exactly the most popular person in America. Um, but that lane, it doesn't doesn't seem open for some for some reason or another. Or maybe he just he'd seen enough of Congress, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, he's someone that he's represented his swing seat. He has that position. But I think when we look at where the primary electorates in these states are in Texas, especially, it's hard to see him winning a statewide race. I mean, if he took on Cruz, even though Cruz is unpopular, I think that would still be an uphill battle and things. But, you know, Igor and others are right. I mean, he has such a great resume, national security profile. But I mean, these people that are the Trump critics and skeptics, it's just hard to see them having a lane. Chris Christie sort of being the chief one, um, you know, heard hopping in there uh, as well. And, you know, he's someone that certainly seemed like he had a rising national profile. I mean, both him and remember him and Beto took that famed road trip back from Texas when they were stranded one time and live streamed it and stuff. And, you know, Beto tried his hand twice at statewide politics there in Texas and, and lost. But, you know, you look at some of the other candidates that would have ready-made profiles. I mean, someone like Tim Scott uh, sh- should be a dream candidate, I think, in any other gener- any other generation um, pre-Trump. But the party has just changed so much. And, you know, another one that I'm interested in that seems to be floating now as well, the New York Times reported yesterday that now Florida Senator Rick Scott is uh, weighing, jumping in the race. Now, there is no love lost between him and DeSantis. Um, after succeeding him, the two really despise each other. Um, Rick Scott was, of course, the most recent past chairman of the National Republican Senatorial Committee last cycle, kind of tried to challenge McConnell after failing up almost to after a really very controversial tenure and failing to win the majority. Um, it just feels like, you know, who in Florida now is not running. <laughs> right, right. Florida's getting busy. Yeah. Uh, speaking of our uh, uh, our favorite Florida man, uh, Donald Trump himself, uh, he, uh, he he decided to to head back to his uh, some of his familiar ground in Fox News talking to Brett Baer, and it didn't go quite perhaps as well as as uh, as the Trump people would have hoped for. We've got a little clip. We'll listen to it right here. said that. I'm going to surround myself with only the best and most serious people. Your vice president, Mike Pence, is running against you. Yeah. Your ambassador to the United Nations, Nikki Haley, she's running against you. Your former secretary of state, Mike Pompeo, said he's not supporting you. The national security advisor, John Bolton, he's not supporting you either. Attorney General Bill Barr says you shouldn't be president again, calls you the consummate narcissist and troubled man. You recently called Barr a, a gutless pig. Uh, your second defense secretary is not supporting you, called you irresponsible. This week, you called your White House Chief of Staff John Kelly weak and ineffective and born with a very small brain. You called your acting White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney a born loser. You called your first Secretary of State Rex Tillerson dumb as a rock and your first Defense Secretary James Mattis the world's most overrated general. So 
Why did you hire all of them in the first place? Because I hired 10 to 1 that were fantastic. We had a great economy. So, uh, Joe, <laughs> it, it almost you, you have to admire Brett Bear being able to say all that, you know, without losing breath. Uh, with, with the this interview just it, it just that was almost like not even the, the, the low light for Trump. I mean, he, you know, got himself into a, a tangle with talking about uh, the documents that he wanted to go through at Mar-a-Lago. I mean, like this uh, just did not go well for Trump. And, you know, is there a possibility you think that things like this could could soften some support on him? Yeah, the, the one that really stood out to me, too, was the uh, woman he, uh, I believe, pardoned. But then Bear was asking him about how, you know, his plan to execute drug dealers and how, uh, you know, he just seemed completely flummoxed by that that whole uh, exchange. Uh, I it, There was some commentary this week that I think is right on, though, that some of this what makes him what damages him for the general election seems to only make him stronger in the primary in some ways. So, I mean, we, we, I guess could see some softening in the polls, but that base already seems so hardened. And when he seems to have a bad day or a bad week, it seems like a lot of those base voters just double down on it. He's our guy. He's under attack. Uh, and it just solidifies uh, their support. And it's kind of a, a weird, there's a weird physics going on there. And, Igor, I mean, one of the things that I thought of when, you know, he's reading this sort of laundry list of of uh, of people, you know, cabinet secretaries and chiefs of staff and so forth that he hired and then sort of cast off is that if, you know, he's surrounded himself with people who are, you know, at this point, at least immensely loyal. And if he were to win the White House again, it's it's I mean, I think that he would fill the uh, the roster again, but it wouldn't be with people like Jim Mattis uh, or John Kelly. It would be with the same people who are running the campaign now, who are not you know not a, don't have a lot of experience in government as as opposed to being in the campaign. Yeah, it really makes you um, think about what exactly his second presidency would be like if he did win the nomination and the presidency. Um, some of the people that he surrounded surrounded himself with are, are far more extreme um, and loyal to him than than the first go around. You know, famously, Chris Christie had built up this transition team for him filled with regular establishment uh, Republicans who he had taken on initially and then ended up firing half of them. Um, this time around, you've got far, far uh, crazier people around him telling him exactly wants to he- what he wants to hear and some of the policies that he's rolled out uh, are should be taken very seriously because I don't think he's, as we've seen, I don't think he's joking around about what he wants to do in office. Um, so I think the prospect of a, a second Trump presidency is uh, is um, something that really should be considered a lot more seriously. And and Jessica, I mean, we haven't also seen, except for as, as you mentioned, Chris Christie, we haven't seen a lot of the opponent his opponents in the primary, you know, kind of go for. Uh, go for the gut shot, you know, when, when he's down. They're they're saying things like, well, maybe we would pardon him just for the good of the country, of course. Uh, but I mean, they really seem to be trying to, you know, balance this, uh, you know, trying to look like they uh, they support Trump at the same time that they're trying to beat him. And it's just it seems very mushy. I mean, if you had any other candidate that was indicted multiple times, including on these you know national security issues with these documents and things 
you would absolutely go after them. I mean, that would be a major liability. But, you know, I go back to when Trump said, you know, I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot someone and people would still my supporters would still get behind me. I mean, he has proved to be Teflon, at least with Republican primary voters. And so that's why you see these, you know, reluctant to get behind him. I mean, you've seen some that have struggled to kind of have a coherent line of attack. You know, Nikki Haley, uh, for instance, came out first, said, you know, this was awful what they were doing to him. And then, you know, once the indictment came out and we saw how serious it was, she said there were a lot of concerns, but then she said she would be inclined to pardon him. So it's just, you risk alienating those other primary voters that you need to get on your side. And sort of the, if there is an anti-Trump faction in the Republican party, it, it is split between so many candidates. It's just, you know, to try to get a plurality in some of these places. And remember, I mean, one reason that Trump has been a, survived and, you know, dis, despite, you know, a majority of people n- not voting for him, even in, in that race was because the way the Republican um, primary and calendar is set up is that most of these states are winner take all or by congressional district um, versus the proportional representation that de- de- allocation that Democrats have. And so you really only need to win a plurality in these places. But I mean, it's just stunning when you look back and you see how many vulnerabilities he has. And, you know, when you talk with Republicans and I've talked with members of Congress privately, I mean, they're aghast at all of this stuff. They do not want Trump back in. And they look at the fact that, you know, we've seen three consecutive elections now that have been backlashes to him in which they've lost the House and then they've lost the Senate. Um, They gained the House back, but by a far smaller margin than they expected in 2022. But 2018, 2020, 2022, we've seen a backlash to Trump and his policies. Um, And... You know, another thing that just stuck out to me in that interview as well is that, you know, we've all seen the the Miranda rights that you read. You have the right to remain silent. Well, no lawyer would have advised him to go on (laughs) and do this interview and 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 say these things that are absolutely going to be used against him in court. It's just he cannot stay silent. And it's just amazing that, you know, he continues to act as though he's above the law in these things when, you know, I have to imagine his lawyers were just like banging their heads against the wall when he says these things. Yep. So Joe, uh, Joe Biden uh, was uh, did, did some traveling earlier in the week. He went out to California to raise money, to talk to different constituencies out there. He talked about AI, um, you know, just had sort of a regular presidential trip and then got hit uh, with the news that his son was going to plead guilty uh, to uh, charges that he didn't pay his taxes on time and, and a gun purchase. Uh, and then, you know, that, that was it. There was like a one statement like that, uh, that the White House gave out that the president and the first lady are proud of their son. And that's all they're going to say about it. You know, they love him. And then boom, you know, on on to the next thing um, is it, obviously that's not going to be the end of the story with House Republicans. But how would you describe the, the president's week? Because it was almost that it really was like this, like business as usual kind of thing. I mean, travel, come back, state dinner, you know, with the prime minister of India. I mean, sort of a no, no drama Biden. Yeah, it was, I mean, very typical. He was out in California. I think he was announcing some money for climate resiliency, you know, trying to shore up, uh, I guess the coalition, there's some environmental uh, activists, particularly younger activists who aren't real happy that, you know, he hasn't done more to shut down fossil fuel. So, you know, very typical stuff trying to sort of shore up that constituency. Uh, and uh, you mentioned the other things they did this week. And in the middle of it is this huge potential, you know, I mean, it's it's really history, right? The, the son of a 
sitting president uh, pleading uh, guilty on these federal charges. Uh, they can try and ignore it for now. I mean, House Republicans, uh, Senate Republicans are definitely not going to let this go. You're going to see um, all, all sorts of hearings, subpoenas. Um, you know, there's definitely this movement uh, that I think we'll talk about a bit about, you know, to try and get uh, impeachment kicked off. So I think for the for the moment, they're trying to just sort of keep keep on keeping on. Uh, I don't think that's sustainable. I think they're going to have to at some point. Uh, you know, address uh, all of these uh, things that are getting dredged up in connection with Hunter Biden. And and Igor, uh, you know, House Republicans were right right out of the gate. They're saying, you know, this is a slap on the wrist. It's soft peddling, uh, you know, because it's the president's son. Of course, leaving that's leaving aside that it was a uh, a Trump appointed and kept on by the Biden administration U.S. attorney that prosecuted the case uh, that that uh, did that. But they're they're going to keep as as Joe said, they're going to they're going to keep this in the headlines. But at a certain point, does it start to become the law of diminishing returns? Because now I, I know that whenever I hear the term Hunter Biden's laptop, my eyes start to glaze over a little bit before I have to remind myself, no, this is news. This is history. But is this is this just going to be a, a dead horse that we see whipped a lot in the next couple of years? Yeah, I mean, you're right. I think a lot of this stuff requires you to go down a rabbit hole and really, you know, there, there's that gif of uh, of a. Of a uh, always sunny, you know, character behind a a, a, a lot of maps and, and, you know, strings. And, you know, you're going down, you're trying to figure out, connect the dots of what, what all this is about. To a regular voter, <laughs> it uh, it's it's kind of hard to uh, figure out what this is all about, except for, you know, you hear all these Republicans screaming about Hunter Biden all the time. And I think for them, it's it's a convenient way to deflect from the all the Trump investigations and all the you know, his legal jeopardy in January 6th. Um, so kind of a, you know, what about, what about, what about ism uh, taking place? Um, now, as, as far as the details, I mean, it doesn't look good for Biden. It, it, at least it, it, it gives Republicans an out. Uh, even, even, you know, fairly regular mainstream Republicans have been going along with this. Um, people like uh, Nancy Mace, Congresswoman of South Carolina, who, who seemed to uh, be, you know, calling out Trump in the early days is now full tilt, um, alleging that that Biden is corrupt. Uh, kind of a, 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 you know, makes your head snap that she she's running along with this, just you know, calling calling, um, saying that that the president had accepted bribes full tilt, um, not using any language to couch it at all. Uh, so it kind of shows you where where this is heading, and and um, it's it's not going to stop here, I don't think. And Jessica, like the, I mean, the the House Republicans, you know, they they, they do feel strongly about this. Is is as you said, they're they're sort of full in. Um, you know, your your level of specialty is in the Senate and and governor's chairs. Is this is this something that has salience at a statewide races? Because this this will, I mean, we are in a Senate reelection cycle that you know heavily favors the Republicans. Is this the kind of thing that they're going to run on that they that they think that is going to you know uh, yield uh, good good prospects for them running on Hunter Biden and and the Biden crime family as the, as they like to call it. I mean, I'm not seeing that yet, and it's still very early. You know, we've only got a handful of people in because this is such a completely defensive map that Democrats have. They're defending 23 seats to just 11 for Republicans. All eight races that we rate as competitive are Democratic held, so they're getting recruits in and things. And 
you know, what Democrats hope is that the Republicans are kind of forced into talking about this in a primary. And but, you know, the House Republican controlled further to the right. You know, I I don't ex- I have not seen this a lot. I again, I think this is something that is used up to gen up the base in a way. And Republicans, I think, would be smart to focus on other issues, the economy and immigration and different things. And I, I haven't seen that yet, but we'll see how it plays in and where this, you know, in- investigation goes and things. But, you know, I think there's still questions that remain, you know, certainly Hunter Biden has had his problems. And there's, I think people can realize that you have family members that have problems. Everyone kind of has that person in their family. And so, you know, and he's, you know, talked openly about his struggles with drug and al- drugs and alcohol and, you know, but Biden has stood by him as, you know, any good father would. And I think, you know, there's questions about if he used his father's name, did his father know about it is the question. He may not have even, you know, that's a question, you know, with these whistleblowers coming forward and, and different things. So it's not a major issue that I've seen yet. And I, I, if it's being echoed in the presidential campaign, certainly that could trickle down, but not as of yet. Yeah, it's it's an interesting wrinkle because we're used accustomed to presidential siblings getting into trouble, going all the way back to Don Nixon. Yeah, uh, but Billy Billy Carter, yeah, you know, yeah. Roger Clinton, um, you know the 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 Bush twins were a little young, even though there were you know every, occasionally reports of them you know getting going to the tombs and getting loaded. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, but but this is a new wrinkle: a, a grown yeah. a grown man, a grown son uh, getting into this kind of trouble. Um, all right, we're uh, there's a lot more to talk about. We're going to get to the, some of the drama on the House floor in, in a second. Uh, we'll be back after a short break on the Bill Press Pod Reporters Roundtable. I'm Jason Dick, editor in chief at CQ Roll Call, sitting in for Bill along with Joe Morton, Jessica Taylor, and Igor Bobich. Today's podcast brought to you by the United Food and Commercial Workers Union. Yes, those good men and women, 1.3 million working men and women strong members of the UFCW under President Mark Perrone. They service all of us in many, many different ways at our big retail stores like Nordstrom and Macy's. The people that take care of us at our great grocery chains like Safeway and Whole Foods. Those on the front line and our meat and poultry processing plants, chemical plants and cannabis plants. We thank the men and women of the UFCW for their great work, taking care of all of us Americans, and we thank them for their support of the Bill Press Pod. Go to their website, check it out at ufcw.org. You'll be amazed at all the good causes they're involved in. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued 
at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And we are back on the Bill Press Pod Reporters Roundtable. I'm Jason Dick, Editor-in-Chief at CQ Roll Call, sitting in for Bill, along with Joe Morton from the Dallas Morning News, Igor Babich from HuffPost, and Jessica Taylor from the Cook Political Report. Uh, Before we open up this next section, we've got some audio aids. Uh, Let's play uh, Kevin McCarthy's starring role in yesterday's drama on the House floor. By its adoption of House Resolution 521, the House is resolved. That the House of Representatives censures Adam Schiff, representative of the 30th Congressional District of California, for misleading the American public. And for, and for conduct unbecoming of an elected member of the House of Representatives. Joe, I mean, the, you know, the, the Republicans... Uh, Gave this a shot last week uh, uh, in, in censuring Adam Schiff. There were uh, some fines attached to that censure, so they withdrew that. They brought it back up. Um, you know, you, we just heard Kevin McCarthy reading the censure uh, resolution, which, you know, it, it's, it's this sort of ritualistic uh, thing where the, the member being censured has to go into the well of the House and then it's his crimes are read to him. Um, and but th- this this seemed to be. Uh, animated. This was uh, everybody knew where this was kind of going at this point, but there, you know, like after McCarthy gaveled it down, you know, Democrats were yelling shame, shame. I mean, it, this was a, a kind of a dramatic moment, and again, it stretches back to Trump uh, and Schiff's role in being the uh, you know lead investigator during his first impeachment uh, as Intelligence Committee chairman. Yeah, it was it was quite the scene, and I mean, you know, Adam Schiff. Uh, looked real broken up about this censure, didn't he? As he was, as <laughs> yes, he was we, we, have a, we have another clip we'll play in a second. He was walking, you know, he walked down to the well of shame being, you know, uh, with lots of backslaps and chants of his name. You know, I mean, uh, he he really, yeah, he, he could not have looked happier with this, obviously, with his, you know, Senate race and trying to run as, you know, resistance hero. Uh, it was practically this, an in-kind donation to his I, I, That's a great way to put it. That is exactly right. I mean, the, the fundraising emails just sort of spontaneously sprang into existence. We didn't even have to write them. Um, so, you know, uh, th- this does sort of fit into a larger stream, though, of, you know, the majority uh, kicking mi- certain minority members off of committees and this sort of back and forth engaging in, like, you know, th- it gets a little personal with, with these um uh, Member, so I mean, I, you know, I, I doubt this is the last time we we see uh, a censure where the the person being censured and their you know their party rallies around them. I mean, I think in theory, this whole censuring process should be oh, there's universal condemnation of the person. But I mean, this yeah, it, it, I don't see how this uh, does anything but work out pretty well for um, Adam Schiff. And speaking of Schiff, we have uh, his response. To my Republican colleagues who introduced this resolution, I thank you. You honor me with your enmity. You flatter me with this falsehood. You must condemn the truth-tellers, and I stand proudly before you. Your words tell me that I have been effective in the defense of our democracy, and I am grateful. Uh, as, as Joe said, Igor, the, the fundraising just, emails just write themselves, right? <laughs> Yeah, he's got to be loving this. Uh, and you know who else has got to be hating it is uh, Katie Porter, who's also <laughs> running for Senate, and Barbara Lee, and some of the other people running uh, for the for the uh, 
nomination in, in California. Um, I think this is a golden gift to him. And, you know, we're still waiting to see how much money he's raised off of this. But it's got to be an ungodly sum. And he's going to use it. And it's going to be um, well used in California where everybody knows the ad markets are super expensive and you need a lot of money to run. And um, you got you to gotta think what, maybe, you know, maybe this is strategy here, but are Republicans <laughs> pushing this just so they can get a, uh, you know, more of a centrist as a California senator as opposed to somebody who, who, who's like Carrie, uh, Katie Porter, who's a little bit more left than, than Adam Schiff. I'm not, I'm not really sure whether I want to make that argument yet, but um, in the end, they could end up, end up getting uh, somebody who's far more centrist than, than, um, than a progressive like Katie Porter uh, down the line. Jessica, this, you know, I, what, what do you think of the strategery angle as, as Igor uh, referred to it from the, like the Will Ferrell uh, impersonation of W back in the day is strategery. Uh, this seemed, I mean, my, my hunch is that uh, some of the, the Republican base really love this. And then people like McCarthy and some of others are like, oh man, do I really have to do this? I mean, I felt like McCarthy had to go along with it because that's what his caucus wants. He's still, you know, hamstrung by that very, those multiple speaker votes and, you know, backlash from conservatives on the debt deal. So this kind of was an easier concession to make to some of these people, but he certainly understands as anything, especially as a Californian, how this could benefit his campaign. Like I said, it's almost an in-kind donation to his campaign there. And, you know, money is what's going to be king in this race because California is such an expensive state. You have Schiff and Porter that are such strong fundraisers. Um, Schiff has been out there and had the most money in the bank. Um, Porter was, uh, she had a more competitive house raise last time than was expected. So that drained her a little bit. Lee has struggled more in fundraising. You know, again, you have Lee that's sort of been the more traditional type progressive being against the wars and stuff from the beginning of the 2000s, Porter, sort of this new, new sort of nerdy type progressive in the mold of Elizabeth Warren. And then you have Schiff there that has Pelosi's backing in the race and stuff. And, um, you know, it's, it's not a race that is um, going to matter really in the general, you know, it's not a race that Republicans really have the ability to contest, but there's a strong possibility that two of these candidates actually, because of California's top two primary system could advance and shifts in uh, sort of the driver's seats, I think to certainly claim one of these seats. And you heard how in that clip, how gleeful he was, it keeps his name in the news. It's, he can point to, look, I stood up to Trump and, you know, that's how he, his profile was raised with all these impeachments and investigations and everything last time as chairman of the oversight committee. And it just gives him something to point to of they did this. They had the backlash against me. I wear this as a badge of honor. And Joe, it wasn't over with the censure of Adam Schiff uh, on Thursday. There was they also dealt with uh, a little bit of uh, floor, um, you know, uh, gimcrackery, if you will, uh, to use an old timey term. They uh, or the previous day, Lauren Boebert had uh, brought up a privilege resolution to impeach Joe, Pro uh, Joe Biden for high crimes and misdemeanors. There's a quick assembly of the rules committee who devised a rule that enabled them to re-refer it, uh, the, the resolution to the Judiciary and Homeland Security committees. Uh, there was a little bit of drama because uh, people like Marjorie Taylor Greene thought it was their turn in the impeachment line and they wanted to file different impeachment resolutions against who knows, maybe Alejandro Mayorkas, the Homeland Security Secretary. Uh, but this this sort of chaos, uh, that I don't know, I don't want to overuse the term chaos, but this sort of 
maneuvering, it seems like we're going to, this is what the floor is going to look like for a little while in the house. Well, it's, it's such a soap opera. I mean, you know, Kevin McCarthy, uh, I'm sure not for the first time this session had to be, you know, beating his head against the wall. Um, there, you know, Republicans, uh, McCarthy and other Republicans who are looking at the, the bigger picture here, uh, did not want to deal with this impeachment resolution at this time on the floor. Uh, you know, there were plenty of, uh, moderates who didn't want to take that vote and, you know, to see, uh, Bobert and Green really pushing, you know, each other over who gets to do this first. Uh, this is not the look that House Republicans want. Although I will say, I there, it seemed like there was maybe a little uh, Schadenfreude among some of the moderates, uh, you know, looking out from the sidelines and thinking, oh yeah, you know, they they were they were they were doing some chuckling. But uh, yeah, this is this is not the way you know the the grownups in the House Republican Caucus want to be going forward. Switching gears a little bit, Igor, uh, Saturday tomorrow is the one-year anniversary of the Supreme Court's Dobbs decision, uh, which struck down the constitutional right to abortion. Uh, people have been gathering in Washington here and there, uh, you know, on, on both sides, the anti-abortion camp and the abortion rights uh, camp. That I would expect that there would be some demonstrations. Um, beyond just that one-year anniversary uh, of, of the decision, though, this this issue, abortion, is is I mean, this is something that Biden uh, is going to be talking about a lot in his race. And it's something that some of the Republican, you know, his possible Republican primary candidates, whether it's Trump, who doesn't like to talk about abortion too much uh, or, you know, or, or what have you, they, they're they're struggling with how to address this and, and appeal to particularly suburban women. Yeah, I think you're you're definitely right. Um I think bro broadly, you see Democrats far more united on the issue right now. You know, they're they're going down to the uh, floor of the Senate. They're trying to pass legislation protecting abortion rights. Uh, Biden is out there talking about it. Uh, the vice president, Kamala Harris, is out there talking about it. Uh, it has galvanized uh, Democrats in, into um, a, a singular cause uh, in a way that they haven't really had before. Um, whereas Republicans are, are, are far more... Um, disunited over it. You, you have Trump who really refu refuses to even talk about it. Um, I, and I think, you know, he has certain political instincts telling him that uh, perhaps it's it's not as popular uh, banning abortion as, as some of the other Republican presidential candidates think, like Mike Pence, who's leaning into it far more heavily and, and you know, running on a 15-week abortion ban, something that Lindsey Graham also would like to see. So you're going to see this uh, really reverberate over the next next year or two in the presidential campaign and on Senate, on the Senate side, uh, you've got candidates who are, are again, uh, looking to run, uh, on the Republican side who have said, said some pretty extreme things about abortion, you know, calling it murder. Um, so I think Democrats are, are going to be looking forward to, to this fight, uh, as we, as we go forward. And, and Jessica, I mean, this gets to your you know point. I think you, you made it a little earlier in the podcast that, uh, what helps you in the primary hurts you in the general, uh, it, it seems, on, on abortion with Republicans. Yeah, I mean, I think there's no better issue to illustrate that than abortion and how this played in primaries uh, and, and in the 2022 election that really gave Democrats a boost in what should have been historically should have been a good midterm cycle for um, Republicans, all things considered, with President Biden his first midterm in, in the White House. You look at where his approval ratings were, but you had this, you know, generation defining 
a Supreme Court decision that really upended things so much. And I'm not seeing a lot of change in some of these Republican primary candidates so far that, again, if you want to win the primary, you've got to take a stance against abortion. And then you're sort of, uh, you know, we saw even candidates that were very um, conservative on abortion that tried to sort of moderate their position in the general election. You saw, for instance, Blake Masters last cycle in Arizona essentially wanted to ban all abortions. And then he sort of tried to moderate, took some stances off his website once he became the general election candidate. But what you've said is out there and Democrats are ready and eager to use this. And the polling is on Democrats' side. I'm just looking at a new NBC poll that came out. This is 61% of all registered voters disapprove of, you know, the Dobbs decision. And then when you drill down even more so, it's, you know, it's those suburban women that they have lost that are the key swing voters. I'm particularly looking the cycle. I mean, we saw this magnified in state races, and I think especially helped Democrats in gubernatorial races in Wisconsin and Michigan when this was decided back to the states. I'm looking in 2024, one key state for how this could play, and that's North Carolina. Um, You know, they just passed a 12-week abortion ban. This was sort of one of the last vestiges in the South where people could still get abortions. You had a member of the legislature that switched from Democrat to Republican, giving Republicans a supermajority, allowed them to override Democratic Governor Roy Cooper's veto on that. That seat is open. Cooper is term limited. Um, Josh Stein, the attorney general, is expected to be the Democratic nominee. And then you have Mark Robinson, the lieutenant governor, who who is very, very conservative, outspoken on a lot of issues made controversial statements, not only on abortion, but on uh, LGBTQ issues, um, gay rights and different things. And I, I think this could be a, really a key issue in that, in that gubernatorial election. It's a big reason why we've kept our rating in that race as lean Democrat at this juncture. And it, it could give even Democrats an opportunity to, to win the state, you know, which they haven't won since uh, 2008 that Obama won it and he lost it in 2012 and then Trump's carried it twice. So I'm looking at North Carolina sort of as a barometer of how this is still relevant, perhaps in 2024. Well, we have covered a lot today. Uh, I feel like we could go on. Uh, there was, uh, I mean, a lot of news uh, that that just kind of kept it just kept coming, and it was a, it was a short week too because we had a holiday on Monday. Uh, but uh, we are going to uh, cut it off at that point. I'm Jason Dick, editor in chief at CQ Roll Call, sitting in for Bill. Uh, along with Joe Morton, Jessica Taylor, and Igor Babich. Uh, But before we go, uh, it is time for our favorite stories of the week. Uh, These can be funny, sad, important, just a great read. And Igor, let's start with you. Well, the biggest story of the week is clearly the uh, sub that has apparently, unfortunately, exploded in in the North Atlantic uh, over the Titanic um, wreckage. And uh, I got to say, this... This story, it's just kind of, it's just insane to me how much it blew up and how everybody was talking about it. I've had like three or four different separate group chats from like, you know, friends from back in high school talking about it. Everybody seemed to be glued into it. You know, the, the porthole, the uh, the bolt, it was bolted from the outside. Uh, what it was made out of, people were just going insane. And, you know, everybody. Even James Cameron got involved. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Everybody suddenly became a, a sub expert and it was just insane. One cable network, I think, was running a, you know, a, a clock on how much air they had left down there. Um, just just kind of ridiculous uh, a media spectacle in its own self. And it uh, turns out that um, apparently the Navy had had uh, heard or detected the, the, the explosion. Uh, 
early on from uh, from when it went down and some of this media spectacle um, i don't think it was it was really uh, on the money per se how about you jessica so I wanted to draw attention to a new documentary that's airing this week on PBS called Below the Belt. Um, it's it it's actually has a political connection, too, because the producers are Hillary Clinton and also the late Utah Senator Orrin Hatch had a role in producing this as well. And it dives into a disease that one in 10 women has called endometriosis, when which uterine tissue grows, it grows um, outside of the body, can produce incredible pain. I know this because I've had endometriosis. I've had two surgeries for it. It's a very undercovered women's issue and one that many women have to sort of grin and bear it and to work through incredible pain, sort of, you know, sort of silent in a way because you're feeling the pain. Other people can't see you in pain and different things, but it's it's something that's we have far too research um, money dedicated to and far too, you know, even... Uh, OBGYNs that don't fully understand the disease and how it can affect women and different things. So um, a very good documentary that um, that, that goes uh, in into that, that I think is, is a, again, a condition that so many women, um, you know, you've had celebrities speaking out about it in recent years. Uh, Amy Schumer, Lena Dunham, Daisy Ridley have also talked about how it's impacted their health and everything. But, um, but, but again, I think it has certainly an interesting political connection there when you have two people people like Hillary Clinton and Orrin Hatch that were involved in it. Yeah. Yeah. It almost brings to mind the old, uh, uh, times that, uh, that Hatch and, and Ted Kennedy used to get together on, yeah. on health legislation. Mm-hmm. Joe, your, uh, uh, your maiden voyage here on the favorite story <laughs> of the, of the week. Well, I'm going to go, this is apart from politics and it's, it's a little random and nerdy, but <clears throat> I was reading a story in the, uh, Washington post about the global chess league, uh, and, and their kickoff event this week, uh, Magnus Carlsen, the uh, prodigy turned grandmaster, is associating himself with this. And they, they have this uh, idea that they can make uh, you know chess accessible, fast-paced, and viewer-friendly for a younger audience, uh, that this is the original eSport. And uh, as someone who has been playing chess since they were a kid, although you know, admittedly badly, but um, I just find uh kind of fascinating the idea that chess is going to be uh i guess you know in in the eyes of the folks who are putting some real money behind this uh you know the the hot new thing for uh young people today uh i think bad bad chess could be like bad golf uh nobody likes to admit that they're a bad golfer but that's pretty much 99.9 percent of all golfers so hey bad chess there we go Uh, my, my favorite story of the week, I, I struggled with this because I don't want it to sound like I'm a downer, but I've, I've been struck by, um, some of the more recent, uh, losses in the, the world of literature to us. Um, you know, the previous week it was Cormac McCarthy who died, uh, and, and this, and this past week, Robert Gottlieb, the longtime editor, uh, at, uh, um, you know, the New Yorker and, and Random House and, and uh, Simon Schuster and, and so forth. So, but, but like one thing that sort of pulled a lot of these threads together for me, and it was a guest uh, essay 
in the New York Times about McCarthy's career and how he sort of, you know, his his career trajectory was really reflected in the biggest trends in literature, in publishing, which is that his first few novels, uh, first five novels, really uh, uh, did did not sell well. And at one point they were all out of print, uh, you know, things like The Orchard Keeper and Outer Dark, uh, Child of God and Sutri, my favorite of his books, although a close second to uh, uh, Blood Meridian. But all these books, you know, he these kind of particularly Blood Meridian and Sutri were masterpieces, but they didn't make any money, uh, but they were supported uh, by, you know, the, a, a publishing industry that was uh, a little siloed and could afford to carry uh, McCarthy. And then uh, he just, and then the, the, the writer Dan Simkin, who's is a professor at Emory, explained that McCarthy was the beneficiary then of the, the conglomeration of publishing houses with uh, his 1992 novel, All the Pretty Horses, which is eventually adapted into a, a film starring Matt Damon. And that sort of made him this cultural, you know, uh, sort of star. Uh, and then we saw that reflected in other books uh, like The Road and, and No Country for Old Men, which are also adapted. So really good read, really interesting. Again, I didn't want it to be a downer that I'm just focusing on death. Uh, but I, I wanted to sort of I thought felt like this these things sort of brought all the all these threads together of these sort of literary lions. Um, all right. Well, that is a wrap for this edition of the Bill Press Pod Reporters Roundtable. Our thanks to you for listening and to Joe Morton, Washington correspondent for the Dallas Morning News, Igor Babich, senior politics reporter at HuffPost, and Jessica Taylor, Senate and Governor's Editor at the Cook Political Report. I'm Jason Dick, Editor-in-Chief at CQ Roll Call, sitting in for Bill. Next Tuesday, Bill will be back with an interview with Barry Lynn. Uh, Barry is an ordained minister and a prominent longtime leader of the religious left. He has a few choice words for the religious right. In the meantime, thanks again for listening to the Bill Press Pod Reporters Roundtable and have a great weekend.